The sermon text for this morning is, as I mentioned a moment ago, Romans 10, 14 to 21. If you have a Bible, turn there. At Grace, we, we're trying to get into this new habit of declaring this. You're about to hear the Word of God, and we hear the reading of the Scriptures, and then I say, this is the Word of God, and we respond, thanks be to God with gratitude for the fact that we get to hold the very words of Almighty God. So hear the word of God. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Yahweh who has believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about the Messiah. But I ask, did they not hear? Well, yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, let me give you a couple of witnesses. First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. If you could open up in your Bibles again to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and we'll be in... That section that I just read in verses 14 to 21, uh, you should have received as well a service guide on your way in, and you'll find this week in the service guide a detailed outline for where we're going to be going in Romans chapter 10. So uh, for those of you who like to follow along and jot a couple of notes now and again, that'll probably be helpful to you. Well, let me say again, good morning, family. How y'all doing today? Fantastic. You know, we we had a really great trip, Susan and Nehemiah and I visiting our oldest son, Colton, and his wife, Nicole. We had a wonderful time worshiping with the people of Parkside Church and outside of uh, the Cleveland area, but I got to tell you, I missed you all, and I love you all, and it's so good to be back home with you and worshiping with you this morning here together, and if you are a guest with us this morning, and maybe this is just your first or second time with us. I just want to kind of just let you know so I could maybe set you at ease. You're, a bit of a, you're at a bit of a disadvantage here this morning because we've been, a, we've been studying the Apostles Paul letter to, to the Romans for about a year now. And we've been in chapters 9 to 11 for the last few months. And so when you heard me read this section of Scripture, chapter 10, verses 14 to 21, that might have been just a little bit jarring for you because you're just kind of thrown right into the the middle of it, and I would love to give you an outline and an overview of where we've been, but I simply do not have time 
for that this morning. You could, however, if you like, subscribe to our podcast where you can hear the sermons and all the teaching that's done here at Grace Church, or you could subscribe to our YouTube page and you could get a bit of that context, but we're going to just have to get right to it this morning, all right? So you might be wondering why Paul begins this little bit here in Romans with a series of questions. Well, it's because of what he has just said in chapter 10, verse 13. So let your eyes drift up a little bit there to verse 13, where he says, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, which is an amazing statement and an amazing promise. Everyone who calls on Jesus will get the rescue of Jesus. And I think that Paul now realizes that a reasonable response would be, okay, that's helpful. It's helpful. Okay, so if I call on Jesus, I'll be saved. How do I do that? In other words, how do I get to the point of really, truly calling on Jesus? What has to happen for someone to even be aware that they need to call on Jesus? In a very real sense, this is what Paul has been on about in the entire letter that he's written to the Romans. You see, Paul doesn't think that the good news of Jesus, which, <laughs> let's pause here for a minute and make sure that we're clear on that. I don't think we should assume what the good news is. The good news is that Jesus was born of a woman under law into a world firmly in the grips of, and brokenness of sin. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life and was broken on the cross for our sins. Jesus was laid in a tomb and then he rose from the dead after three days and he ascended in glory to the right hand of the Father where he awaits the moment for the Father to utter the word and he will return to this earth. He will finish the work that he started. He will make all things new and we will live with each other and with him forever. That is the good news. And Paul doesn't think that this news is something to be merely studied and taught among Jesus followers or analyzed and dissected in the laboratory of church life. Rather, it's news. <laughs> what do you do with news? You announce it. You proclaim it, and you obey, and you do that among those suffering in the darkness of unbelief. And so as Paul continues to address Israelite unbelief in this section of the letter, he comes back again to describe his mission, his mission, which is the mission concern of every obedient follower of Jesus. He's describing his mission in terms of the urgent necessity of proclaiming the good news in order that people may come to faith. And this is what verses 14 to 17 are about. And then in verses 18 to 21... Paul will provide an explanation for Israelite unbelief and the devastating consequences of that unbelief for not only them, but for all of those that they were supposed to be on mission to reach with the good news. You see, the Israelites had dammed up the living water of the Messiah that was supposed to flow out into a parched and desolate and good newsless Gentile world. 
That's what 18 to 21 is about. So let's take each in turn, and then we're going to see. So we're going to study each of those passages, and then we're going to see what we can learn from their mistakes. Okay? Ready? Look at 14 to 17. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to go from the bottom up so we can understand how the nations can call on Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus need to be sent to those who don't believe in Jesus. And having been sent, they are now to proclaim. They're able to proclaim because they've been sent what? What are they supposed to proclaim? Propositions? Eloquent arguments? Doctrine? Well, yes, but more. They need to proclaim the Messiah. They need to proclaim Jesus. They need to embody and in a sense incarnate the Savior. People don't, see, here's the deal. People don't need to merely hear about Jesus. They need Jesus. So that is why Jesus people are sent so that non-Jesus people can see and hear Jesus. And having this kind of incarnational proclamation, they are then able to believe. And once they believe in Jesus, once they see him and know him for who he truly is in the midst of their lostness and sin, then with joy and urgency and great enthusiasm, they may then call on him in whom they have believed. So do you see now how clearly the dominoes are positioned and must fall, each one absolutely necessary to the next, in order to get to the place where a lost person calls on Jesus and is saved? And that simply will not happen until the first domino is tipped over without sent ones being proclaiming ones. And when that happens... It is, Paul says, a stunningly beautiful thing. How beautiful are the feet, verse 15, quoting Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, Paul here immediately goes back to the time of Isaiah and he remembers the story of God delivering Israelites from foreign oppression by their enemies. He remembers the establishment of, of peace and happiness and salvation through the, through the rule of God over them. Isaiah pictures it like a herald that is coming over the mountains to say, you've been delivered. You've been delivered. You've been saved. Joy, happiness, celebrate. Good news. And so here in this moment for Paul, the ultimate display and crowning achievement of God's salvation, Jesus. How beautiful are the feet indeed. But not all obeyed the good news, verse 16. For Isaiah also says, Yahweh, who has believed our message. You see, Paul further recalls that in Isaiah's time, not all, even in Isaiah's time, not all the Israelites obeyed God, even as he held out salvation to them. They rebelled. They continued in their idolatry. They rejected the good news of God's deliverance on his terms, on his terms. You see, even, even good news has within it terms 
things that must be followed, things that must be obeyed, a ruler who has authority and must be submitted to. Knees have to be bent. And just like in Isaiah's time, so in Paul's. Israelites are still struggling to obey the terms of the news. They weren't listening as they should. Right? We, we say this, don't we? Are, are you listening to me? <laughs> are you listening? When we say that to our kids, there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? Hearing means they just, little words went through the air that got disturbed and hit their little drums, and they completely ignored that little drum beat. Listening means you did what I said. Means obedience, and they weren't doing that. They weren't believing. And since they didn't believe, they didn't call on the name of Jesus, and so they were stuck in their unbelief. And Paul's point is this. Faith comes from what is heard, verse 17. And what is heard comes through the message about the Messiah, You see, before you trust, you have to listen. And unless the Messiah's word is proclaimed, there's nothing to listen to. And if that happens, then then the nation simply cannot call on Jesus. God forbid. Now look at verse 18. Paul's going to begin to explore the cause of Israelite unbelief. One might ask him, why is there this large group of Israelites who have not called on the name of Jesus, Paul? I mean, what is the cause of that unbelief? And Paul takes us through some various causes through a series of questions. First, it's not because they haven't heard. Their unbelief isn't because they haven't heard, because they have heard. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did hear. Think of how the psalmist speaks of the message of the glory of God being spread by creation itself, and you'll have a picture of the spread of the message of the Messiah. Their voice of those sent has gone out to the whole earth, and their words, the message of the good news, to the ends of the world. Now, Paul is under no illusion that every single Israelite has heard the good news. His point is that they have been reached. They're a reached people group, we would say in missiological terms today. The message is among them. And so they've had a chance to hear it. So it's not that they haven't heard. Second, Israelite unbelief isn't because they haven't understood what they have heard. They have understood it. But I ask you, did Israelites not understand? Well, let me give you a couple of witnesses as proof that they did understand. Verse 19, Moses, first witness, said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation. Look at that lacks understanding. See, Paul's remembering back once again to the story of Scripture, right? It's good to build our arguments on the Bible, isn't it? You see, God had reached out to Israelites through his prophet Moses. He was longing longing to be their God, longing that they would be his people. And they just kept turning to idols. (laughs) They just kept turning again and again to idols. And you know what that did to God? It, It made him jealous, like a jilted lover. So God responds, measure for measure, 
he decides that he will give his love to another nation, a nation that has no reason, no reason or resources for understanding because they did not know Yahweh as the Israelites knew Yahweh. And he does this in the hopes of making Israelites jealous so that he can then win them back. It's kind of like a man divorcing his wife and then she goes and lives with someone else and then the man sees how happy her new boyfriend is and then he's provoked like, oh no, what did I let go of? How stupid am I? And then he wants her back. See, Gentiles, because of that going on, come into the blessings of the covenant. God hoping that Israelites will realize, look at what you've lost. <laughs> look at what you could have had with me. Isaiah, our second witness, says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I, I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. Once again, in the time of Isaiah, in the context of widespread Israelite rejection of God's salvation on his terms, he, re, he moves to reveal himself to all sorts of outsiders and nations who are wonderfully surprised by the loving, forgiving, merciful, compassionate, saving God who was so unlike their gods, so much better. They never even thought of seeking out this God. And God calls them in. So Israelite unbelief isn't because they, they haven't seen others believe and therefore haven't understood what God was doing. See, they did understand. They're seeing it. They know what it looks like. God's actions make it clear what his purpose has always been. That they would believe and that they would then in turn be on mission to bring about that same belief among the nations. You see, God's heart has always been for all the nations. Always. Third, Israel, Israelite unbelief isn't because God gave up on them. It's not because of that. Look at verse 21. But to Israelites, he says, all day long, all day long I've held out my hands. He just stands there with with open arms, he stands there like the father on the, on the porch step in the parable of the prodigal son, just waiting to see that come, that son come down the road. If you would just start walking towards me, I would run towards you and I would embrace you. I just keep holding my arms out, hoping you'll come back to me. So if Israelite unbelief isn't because they haven't heard or haven't understood or because God didn't give up on them, then Why? Why don't they believe? Because, Paul tells us, just like in Moses' time, just like in Isaiah's time, so in Paul's time, they have been a disobedient and defiant people. You see, they did not obey the good news. They did not believe in Jesus or submit to him as the Messiah. They did not have faith in relationship to what they had heard. And in this sense, in this sense, because maybe you're asking, why this text for Missions Sunday and Missions Month? Well, in this sense, the text before us is absolutely not a Missions Sunday kind of text. It's absolutely not. 
Because Paul isn't giving us an example here of an unreached people. People, prophets, messengers had been sent. Missionaries, if you will, had been sent to Israelites. They were reached. What was required to be saved by calling on the name of Jesus had taken place. Proclaimers had been sent. The good news had been delivered. Jesus Jesus Messiah had been delivered. And in this way, the Israelites were not on the unreached, unengaged people group lists. The chain of missions work was thus complete, verses 14 and 15. But they, disobedient and defiant, had rejected the messengers and the message. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them. There's an old saying, you've all heard it, I'm sure. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Something struck me as I studied Paul's words to us. I don't want to be like the unbelieving Israelites. I don't want to be like them in a slightly different way. You see, they were disobedient and defiant as regards Jesus. They refused him as Messiah and King. It kept them from becoming the true children of God. And Paul could not control, listen, Paul could not control their response to Jesus proclaimed any more than we can control someone's response to Jesus proclaimed. That is not ours to own, the response. That is God's work in the heart to bring about faith and belief and a calling out, a confession of Jesus. It's not your work. It's God's. But how many of us are, after our conversion, after we have said, I believe Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, how many of us are disobedient and defiant to Jesus? How many of us are unwilling to be sent to proclaim the good news locally? Okay, let's, in terms of our understanding here at Grace, let's call that outreach. To proclaim the good news locally is outreach. How many of us are unwilling to do that? How many of us are unwilling to proclaim the good news cross-culturally to the unreached? Let's call that missions. Okay, so outreach is proclaiming the good news of Jesus locally in our same context culture, Proclaiming the good news of Jesus cross-culturally to another culture and people group. Let's call that missions, outreach and missions. How many of us are unwilling to do that so that the dominoes of salvation listed in 10, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 may fall at the feet of those in unbelief, at least giving them a chance to proclaim the name of Jesus? You see, in this way, this absolutely is a missions text. See, Paul has raised the question of whether Israelites who have rejected the good news have actually received a fair chance, a fair chance of hearing and understanding and embracing that good news. And his answer is, they have. They have gotten that chance. But the question that has confronted me and convicted me and haunted me this week is twofold. Have all the residents of Salida received a fair chance 
of hearing and understanding and embracing the good news of Jesus? And my answer is, they have not. They have not. And have all the nations, the thousands of unique ethnicities in the world, over 7,000 ethnic groups that, ha- that don't have one person who knows the name of Jesus among them. Have they received a fair chance of hearing and understanding and embracing the good news of Jesus? And my answer absolutely has to be they have not. What are we called to do about that? Are are those two realities our problem? Are they our responsibility? Are they our opportunity? (laughs) Are they our purpose? Are they our joy? I was talking, Susan and I got to be with Ryan and Rebecca this week, and and Ryan said, it's an adventure. (laughs) I was like, yes, brother, it is. It's an adventure. It's a delight to tell people here, locally and far, about the good news of Jesus. It's a delight to tell them, I've got the message that'll take you out of your darkness, that'll help explain all the reasons why you're suffering and why you're grieving and why you can't get past that sin in your life, and his name is Jesus. And it's our responsibility to ensure that the good news is proclaimed to them. Can we be honest with each other for a minute? Can we do that? We're the good news plus safety plus time place, right? So this is a safe place. Can we be honest with each other and just say that that we're all aware, like this is the moment in the Missions Sunday sermon where you're like, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, he's going to make me feel guilty. Oh, he's going to work on, he's just going to work on shaming me. That's what he's going to do. I just know it because that's what they do on Mission Sunday. You know, I'm just not enough. Not giving enough. Not doing enough. That won't work. And it will not do. Because God doesn't believe in guilt and shame. But he does, however, believe in conviction. And he sends the Holy Spirit to bring it. And so I am simply asking you this morning to prayerfully ponder and ask the Holy Spirit to help you answer a question. And it's not just that you're going to hear this question over and over again over the next month. Are you being disobedient and defiant to the call and purpose of God for your life to, the, to be the means by which Lost and damned people become found and delivered people. Can we listen to Jesus together for a minute? I'd like you to think about what he says is the purpose that must be woven throughout our lives. You, like you see like a, a weave, right? And there's all these threads that we have in our lives, right? And there's this thing that is supposed to be woven in the th- all the other threads in our lives. Okay. 
We, we all have jobs, right? <laughs> there's jobs that you have to do. You, there's diapers that need to be changed, laundry that has to be done, meals that need to be made, lawns that need to be mowed or, or raked, as the case is in Colorado. Right? And, and among all those other threads, woven in all that living is this. Follow me. Follow me. And I will make you fish for people. And immediately, the dudes there hearing that, seeing Jesus, left their nets and followed him. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Go, go. And as you are going, make disciples, pantata ethnos of all ethnicities. One author notes, it is clear from the Bible, it's clear, being a disciple of Jesus means letting his global purpose, his global purpose drive everything that you think desire and do in your family and work and church for the rest of your life, which means however and wherever Jesus wants to lead your life. Are you willing to make a disciple of the person who lives across the street from you or makes your coffee at your favorite coffee house or rings up your groceries Are you willing to pack your bags and move to the Middle East? Yes, Gaza, West Bank, to make disciples there. If not, according to Luke 9.23, you are either not a Christian or you don't understand Christianity. Because Christians surrender their rights to determine the direction of their lives. That's a sobering reminder to me this week. My life is not my own. I was bought with a price. It's not my own anymore. I have a king. I joyfully go where he sends. If anyone would come after me, he says, he must deny himself. Jesus says those words meaning That the starting point for a Christian is dying to yourself and living for Jesus' purpose no matter what that means or where he leads. A willingness to make disciples in Salida or the Middle East or of any ethnicity, listen, it is not the mark of a mature Christian. It is the most basic elementary expectation of every Christian. (laughs) every Christian. This isn't just for Charlie and Sherry or Ryan and Rebecca or any other missionary or pastor. This is the joyful call of all of us. Who hasn't wanted to be the hero in the superhero movie saving someone? Like, oh, I wish I could be that person. Well, you can. (laughs) You can save someone from eternal damnation. You can be a part of that. I mean, you can't directly. You can be a part of that by proclaiming Jesus into the darkness. 
Brothers and sisters, our lives must increasingly, they must increasingly, so hear that, increasingly, so this is a process. See that no guilt, no shame. We're the place of good news, safety, time, urgency. This is urgent, urgency, but not hurry. We, we have to ask, what's the one step in missions you want me to take closer to you, Jesus, in obedience? What's the one step? What are you calling me to? Our lives must increasingly be marked by a concern for outreach and for missions. And here's what's amazing about these two things and how they're different and yet the same. I think that they mutually encourage and energize each other. If you're telling people across the back fence about Jesus and you see what that starts to do in someone else and how God works, you'll start to get excited for seeing that happen across the, across the globe. And if you start getting excited about seeing that happen across the globe, across the water, in other ethnicities, and you start praying for someone like that, if you've got a little picture of Ryan Rebecca on your refrigerator, you'll start to get excited like, I don't have to just pray for them. I can do that here. So how can we do this? How can we care more about and be increasingly involved in outreach and missions? So as I thought about that question, I thought about it. So the first thing I want to do, so here's what we're going to do this week. For the next few minutes. What are the obstacles to doing what Jesus is calling us to do? Next week, so now you got a lot of the interpretation, you got a lot of that scripture, Romans 10, 40, 20. Next week, we're going to talk about like, how can, what are some concrete ways that I can work that out? How can I attack that kind of positively? But first, right now, we want to do is, what are the obstacles to that? Because I'm guessing we could all say, I, I could grow. I, I could grow in this. I got room to grow, Pastor. I have three obstacles that I think keep us from being involved in outreach and missions the way that Jesus wants us to. First, awkwardness. Second, we don't believe in hell. Third, we don't make ourselves aware regularly, daily, of the urgent need of good news proclamation. So we're going to take each of those in turn. They're in your service guide. You can see them there. First, awkwardness. Now, you may think that listing awkwardness as an obstacle to the good news is kind of a silly thing to say. Awkwardness? What, what are you talking about? But don't dismiss the power of the awkward to lead you to disobedience and defiance to Jesus' command. One of, my, uh, one of my children, one of our children, abhors awkwardness. So if we're, if we're watching a movie, and we all know this, right? Like, I mean, who hasn't? Maybe some of you haven't, but who hasn't watched The Office and seen Michael Scott? Like every time he's on the screen, it's an awkward, cringeworthy moment, right? Like we all have watched movies where there's this awkward moment and, and one of my children, like every time that happens on the screen when there's even the slight hint of awkwardness, he is out of the room. I mean, and he's got to go upstairs to get out of the room for where our TV is at. I mean, he, he starts squirming in his chair and he's like, ah! We have a desperate fear of the awkward, of awkward conversations, of an awkward moment, of being seen the fool, of, of not knowing what to say next. Many of us will flee in the face of such a, a possibility like, like my child, or, or 
we will, because we're more sophisticated than that, we will do so preemptively. We will think about all those places where there could be awkwardness and we'll do everything we can to get away from that awkwardness. Family, what could be more awkward than talking to someone about their sin? What could be more awkward than talking to them about their need? About the reality of a God (laughs) that you cannot see. Of a person they do not know nor will not physically meet in this life. Of a Holy Spirit who, in the way they would think about it, even though we would say it differently, is possessing them to change them. What could be more awkward than than an ancient book that claims authority over every aspect of their lives of a God who was born of a virgin who was impregnated by a spirit so that her son was fully God and fully man who died willingly on a cross, was buried in the ground for three days only to rise again and disappear into the clouds, but who's also a king who's going to come back one day on those clouds riding on a white horse to judge the living and the dead. Yes, could I have some more creamer for my coffee? I mean, talk about awkward. We're crazy. We are crazy people. And what does Jesus say? What does he say? Go. Go. But, but we say, oh man, Jesus, man, it's just so awkward. And it's hard. I mean, it can be so uncomfortable and embarrassing to talk about the good news with someone. To which Jesus replies, you mean embarrassing like, like say hanging naked on a cross? Accused for something you didn't do? Dying for people who would mock and condemn and reject you? You mean awkward like that? Come on now, take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. Press into the awkward. Make disciples. You see, family, the goal, the whole point of, of looking at awkwardness, the goal isn't to remove the awkwardness. See, I think that's what some of us get wrong. I have to figure out a way so that it's not awkward. No, that isn't the goal, and it's not going to happen. It's going to be awkward. The goal is to press into the awkward. Just press into the awkward. Proclaim so that people can hear and then believe and then call on Jesus too and they can be saved. It's going to happen no other way. It's going to be awkward. Dealing with the next obstacle will probably help you with this one. Number two, we don't believe in hell. We don't believe in hell. Or at least we don't think about it enough. In his book, Something Needs to Change, a call to make your life count in a world of urgent need, David Platt shares a story. He he shares a story where he and this friend that he has named Aaron, uh, they're they're in the Himalayas, and and David has been there to to work with this this young man named Aaron for the, the people group that he's trying to reach in the Himalayas. And uh there's a a disaster that happens and, and so they're burying some people and in Hinduism there's this 
funeral burial rite where they, they wrap the bodies in a, in a white cloth very quickly after they die, within 24 hours, I believe, and, and they put them on a, on a funeral pyre and they, they burn the bodies. And, and so this, as they're sitting there, this, this body is brought, wrapped in white, and it's laid on this funeral pyre at the edge of a river. And, and a man takes a, a torch and he, he lights the feet and the hands and the head and, and the flames start to engulf this white sheet, turning it black and, and burning the body. And as David sits there and looks at this body burning in front of him, he writes in the book that, that I immediately thought, he says, I, I thought about how Jesus describes hell as conscious torment, Luke 16, 23, as outer darkness, Matthew 8, 12, as fiery agony. Revelation 20, verse 10, describes hell as a lake of fire that, that people will never, ever leave. Even if these are symbols, as some people claim, the purpose of a symbol is to represent something that is real. And these particular symbols express a reality greater than what can be expressed in words. So it should bring no solace to think that the Bible's descriptions of hell might be symbolic because they're only pointing to something that's far worse. So there I sit on the bank of the river, he writes, realizing that if what I believe is true, I am looking now at a physical picture of a spiritual reality. This person whose body is burning was alive 24 hours before and now is in hell. an eternal fire from which they will never be delivered. And then as if that realization is not heavy enough, it hits me. This person, like most every other person whose body is burned on one of these funeral pyres, not only is in hell, but he or she likely never even had a chance to hear about how to go and be present with Jesus. Why, I say to Aaron, as if it's the first time I've ever really asked the question, if the gospel is true, are there so many people in the world who have never even heard about it? That, Aaron says to me, is the mystery to me. We walk on for a while in silence and then Aaron shares, here's the conclusion I've come to about hell. You and I and every person who comes into this place has two options for how we think and live based on what we see here. I'm listening, David says. The first option, says Aaron, is to disbelieve the Bible, to stare at burning bodies and decide that hell just isn't real. Or maybe just to decide that Jesus is not necessary to gain heaven, that people can go to heaven apart from faith in Jesus. But the only way to believe that is to disbelieve the Bible. So that's one option. And the second option, I ask, the second option is to believe the Bible and to show that belief by spending your life sharing God's truth and love in a world of urgent spiritual need. Indeed, David writes, I realize this is the greatest need in every one of our lives, including every life in the Himalayas and throughout the earth, to have hope beyond physical death. All of us will die because all of us have sinned, and that means all people need to hear and believe in the one who has loving authority over death. 
Everybody needs to hear that. The last obstacle is that we don't consider daily the urgent need of good news proclamation. Consider, consider family. How awkward will it be to look your neighbor in the eye who may not know Jesus as they look at you in the eye and are cast into a lake of fire and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say something? You could at least give me a shot. I think that will be far more awkward than any conversation that you could have right now. And consider the fact that there are 3.2 billion people who are unreached or unengaged, meaning they don't have anybody. Unreached means less than 1% of that ethnic population has someone who believes in Jesus to reach that population, or unengaged means there is nobody in their ethnic group who knows Jesus. 3.2 billion people in unreached people groups and are thus on the road that leads to an eternal hell and who cannot be saved from that fate unless they hear and believe the good news and call on the name of Jesus. And how will they hear unless someone is sent? Let's consider sending for a moment and the money and the missionaries that are wrapped up in that in light of 3.2 billion unreached and unengaged people and the reality of hell. We're almost done. I did a little research on giving among American evangelicals just to see exactly how much is going toward missions. While there is some variation, this is, I think these are pretty reliable numbers from what I could find. The average American churchgoer, let's just start there, gives 2.58% of their income to the church, which is appalling. But let's work with it. Of those monies that the church has, of that 2.58%, about 2% goes to missions of some kind. Of that money, less than 1% goes towards unreached, unengaged people groups. Which means that 99% of American evangelical church missions funds goes towards reaching people that have already been reached. 99%. Let's look at missionaries. Radical Ministries, which has done extensive research on this, reports that only 3% of missionaries that are sent into the world are sent to unreached people group, which means that 97% of our missions force is working among people that are already reached. How many of us want Jesus to, re- to return, to come back? Raise your hand if you want Jesus to come back. Do you know the terms for his return? Matthew 24, 14. The good news of this kingdom will be proclaimed. Isn't that what Paul is on about? In all the world, as a testimony to all ethnicities, and then the end will come. So how is it that less than 1% of our money and 3% of our proclamation force are engaged in bringing about the return of the king if that's what we really want to happen? 
Go back to that other side piece, Terry. Leave that up there. I, I mean, it's, I'm convicted. Please don't think that I'm any, we're, this is us, this is us. This is me, like, oh, I got this all figured out. I, I just want us to wrestle with this family. I, I don't know how he, how he comes back if, that's, if that stays the way it is. That's why David writes a book, something needs to change, because something needs to change. Might it be that we don't think of hell enough and don't make ourselves aware enough of the lostness to be reached and the darkness to be penetrated? I ask you, are we as a church being disobedient and defiant to the king? This moment here, the, the meal that Jesus gave us, it, uh, it couldn't be more relevant to what we've been talking about. I mean, what, what you see here, this is a visual representation of the lengths that the Father and the Son were willing to go to to save a lost and damned world. Right here. Who's the greatest missionary that ever lived? <laughs> Jesus. He was sent by his father that we might be saved. This table is a proclamation of their love for us. But not just for us. God so loved the world. All nations. This, this visibly, this is visibly a proclamation of the good news, right? This is visibly a proclamation of the good news. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the master's death until he comes. This is a reminder of why we're here and that he's coming again. We're proclaiming something just by taking communion together. So you don't have to be a member of Grace Church to partake of this table. You just have to be a member of the family of God. That's all. And that could happen today. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And this could be your first celebration of that salvation. How we practice it here at Grace of Servers, would you come forward? How we practice it here is uh, we come forward and, and we've got elders and deacons, uh, leaders in the church that, can, that will serve you. Uh, that section there, that wing goes to that wall and you'll come up here and Dennis will serve you and you'll head back to your seats and hold on to the elements. We'll take those together. This section, go to that aisle and you'll come down here and be served at this table. Y'all will head towards that wall and you'll come down this way and I'll serve you and then that wing will go that way and they'll come over to Mark here and you'll be served. So come and welcome to Jesus the Messiah. <laughs>